Hi team and welcome back to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. This week it was my pleasure to chat with Chris Miller. Chris is a health and performance expert with a background in traditional Chinese medicine, health sciences, nutrition, and specifically in primal movement, working with people to move more effectively, to live better, and to begin to experience the benefits of primal movement through rehabilitation and prehab. Chris is the founder of Primal Phoenix, which you can find at primalphoenix.com, and you can find Chris at Facebook as the Health and Fitness Guy. This was a really great chat, and I, I really love Chris's approach to health and performance, which is holistic yet pragmatic. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this chat with Chris Miller, the Health and Fitness Guy. Welcome to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. I'm your host, Cliff Harvey. All right, we are back with episode 15 of the Carb Appropriate Podcast, and joining me today is my buddy Chris Miller. How you doing? Good, thanks, Cliff. How are you? Good. Chris is the health and fitness guy. Um, now, we, we met on at a keto in uh, Gold Coast, Australia, and I, I was pretty impressed. You know, I thought that I don't think Joe, our mutual friend Joe Keto, Joe Rogister, had um, had probably done you justice. He said, "Oh, we've got a trainer coming in who's going to demonstrate some movement stuff," and I thought, "Oh, that, that that's going to be cool. That'll help to round out what we're doing, and that'll be fine." And then uh, you showed up, and we got chatting, and I realized you had a lot more background, I guess, and a lot more of a holistic view than just you know in gym training. Uh, and some of the things you were doing on stage were were super impressive. Um, but I guess one of the things I wanted to delve into you a little bit is you've got a bunch of qualifications. How did you amass all of that stuff and get to to now doing what you're doing? Uh, yeah, look, it's been, um, I mean, my wife would probably describe it as a, as a manic journey, uh, but there's been this <laughs> overwhelming and, and just urgent uh, need to learn. Um, and that's something that's kind of a, a really only embraced uh, upon leaving school, to be honest. Um, and yeah, my, my qualifications are quite diverse, ranging from you know, history, uh, an honours degree in medieval papal history, to health science, to graduate diplomas in Chinese medicine, and 30 odd sort of 40 uh, odd certifications in PT and different areas of that. Um, so it is quite diverse. Um, I think I've just you know been interested in a lot of different topics, um, and that has just you know really driven me to, you know, delve into things personally, um, but also professionally. Um, when I left university the first time at uh, 21 with my first qualification as a health scientist and a graduate diploma of, um, uh, and a graduate uh, Chinese medicine degree, 
I came up with a business name of Big Caribbean Health Therapies, and that was based off that Da Vinci man uh, in the circle. Uh, and at that stage, I just spent two years just interpersonally loving Da Vinci and going into all his work. And that man meant universal or complete uh, man because it was all about ratios and holistic point of view and this really detailed global perspective of the human body. So I named my business, my first business as a 22-year-old, Vitruvian Health Therapies. I wanted a business that um, was global and was uh, not global as in around the world, but as in holistic and complete and didn't just do massage and acupuncture. It did tra training and nutrition and supplements and philosophy and counselling and all these different sorts of things so that I was this generalist that somebody could see. Uh, but I knew enough in enough different areas to then be able to direct. Uh, where to go and that's probably over the last several years been something that has really gone against um, my approach in the industry is everyone's about specialization I've been kind of trying to get this really broad approach uh, and then use that as a platform to help more people in a more diverse setting and then direct them especially where they need to go so that has just created this very eclectic uh, combination of uh, studies and diplomas and degrees and all sorts of craziness. Yeah it's an interesting point actually I earlier on I think I might have even mentioned this when we first met my first business we had uh, a take on the Vitruvian man as our logo um, but it was basically the transition from you know standard Vitruvian man to the other side was you know a buff dude hitting a double bicep so we, we were probably yeah. a little bit we, I don't I wouldn't say we were that holistic but we, we certainly had that ideal as well I think yeah um, it's interesting the point you make about you know, generalism, because I think often people will look at generalism as, you know, the, the old adage being um, jack of all trades, master of none. And, and I think that's that's fair, you know, in many cases. But we also have many examples through history of people who were true polymaths like your Da Vinci's and, you know, many others who excelled at physical pursuits and ethereal pursuits, academic pursuits, and maybe had what we might consider and anyone else to be mastery in a number of different areas. And I don't think that that's necessarily unattainable. You know, I, I certainly think in my own clinical practice work, I do a pretty damn good job, I think, of strength coaching. I think I do a pretty damn good job of mind body work and nutrition. You know, and there are other areas that I'd say, well, hey, I'm not the, the guy for you. Um, but I think in many cases, you're a similar type of practitioner in that you have some real mastery over a, a couple of those key facets of health. W would you agree? Yeah. And I mean, I'm not somebody that can easily sit there and say that I'm great or, or good at something. Uh, but I mean, yes, I mean, I did. I was the first acupuncturist to tour the Wallabies on the, one of the international tours. Um, yeah. So, you know, I was able to really get into that therapy and clinical side of work with the massage and the additional qualifications that I had as a, as a Chinese medicine doctor, um, but also with the, the taping and um, all the different sort of additional therapies that made me quite a, a well-rounded practitioner in that setting. That also fed into my training section. And, um, you know, at one point before Rhea, I had sort of, I think, eight or nine Olympic athletes training with me uh, whilst I was uh, doing my um my honours degree in medieval history and whilst I was a stay-at-home dad. Uh, so, you know, I think you can, that's right, you can really uh, diversify and do well in different areas and sure you might not get 100% down the rabbit hole but therein I think lies, um, I think, um, 
some important so i think once you go too far down you, you then almost block your vision of other approaches uh, and yeah. one of the things that i really try to embrace with uh, the health and fitness guy and particularly my training style prime authentics uh, is having no set paradigm. So for me, keto is an awesome tool that I'll use as a coach for some people, but others I won't use it because it's not going to work. Um, mm -hmm. And I'll use a different approach for them. Uh, others I will do a very straight, strong, traditional weightlifting program because it suits them to the T. Uh, others I won't even let them go near weights, even if it's what they sort of want. And I will try to encourage them and explain to them why. I really like to have that diverse approach and having all those different qualifications and, and you know, I guess high-level experience with some high-level people in different fields has enabled me to kind of get down far enough to be able to have some credibility, uh, and but also in, in different areas. And I guess when when you are a bit of a generalist, or let's not call it a generalist because that kind of understates, I think, when, when you're a polymath, um, I, I think it can be easy for people to miss what it is you actually do so i think often we require a lever that's basically getting people in the door and then levering open all the other things we do and would it be fair to say that your lever is is primal movement mostly yeah definitely uh, that's what i've really sort of tried to move into and hence the separation now of my of my brand the health and fitness guy as a coach and then the application of the of the holistic point of view that i have for um, you know, movement and movement as medicine and fitness as the avenue to affect all these other different aspects of your life. So for me, you know, training and nutrition are very much intertwined and, and they will, uh, you know, the quality of each and how you do each one will depend on each other and that relationship there. So, I mean, I really do use Primal Phoenix, um, which is, you know, to explain to people what that is. That's my training style, uh, trademark, all that sort of stuff. And what it is, is the combination of primal crawling movements, as well as that primal philosophy of health, of just being fit and strong and lean and efficient and ready to go tackle an animal at any point in time. And calisthenics, that that idea of sort of beautiful strength, of, uh, of strength, of body weight movements, uh, et cetera. And I've tried to mash that together and, and just create this system that is all encompassing for that base of your fitness pyramid in you know, movement and strength and mobility, et cetera. And I use that yeah, directly as my avenue to kind of get people in and go, hey, from this, here's some nutrition information. Here's how you can use this to bolster your athletic endeavors. You can use this to you know, so forth and, and implement all these other different strategies and tools that I can then use, you know, keto being one, supplements maybe being another, uh, some counselling or psychology or whatever it might be, uh, being, you know, other sort of avenues that I can then engage with people and really help them and, and personalise that help to what they need. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting area. How did you get into the, that whole primal movement side of things i mean was it something you developed yourself were you just playing around with with movement or did you learn a lot of that from other people uh look i, I have this uh, uh on my website and people have told me mate you've got to take it off and at the bottom of it it says you know i haven't created any of this i've just stood upon the shoulders of giants in this industry and i've learned from them and i very much believe in that that i've you know you can't almost create anything these days it's about repackaging redirecting and, and sort of you know coming up with systems of it i feel like i have created some exercises and put things together well and in a different style hence primal um but i mean 
I did everything by the book after my third year of construction at 20 when they said I'd never walk or run again. Now, I did everything by that strength and conditioning rehab book and I got nowhere. I read a book on neuroplasticity and I kind of thought, hey, everyone's talked about my injured knee. No one's talked about how that knee's changed my brain. So then I kind of really yeah. delved into that and understanding how the brain influences all these style of things uh, and how it really, you know, controls that rehab and all of your potential for performance as well as just um, life. Uh, so I looked at ways to really integrate that and just started to diversify my movements. And I did things differently at gym. I trained, trained with my eyes closed. I trained with bare feet, ran on sharp rocks, did all crazy things, and then just kept on moving and exploring, developing, doing different courses after course after course after course, um, and just really sort of developed my portfolio of experience. And then from that, over years, I was able to start to build it and put it together. It wasn't until I had a... A tumor in my head about 28 and I was functionally blind for a while and I was completely hammered that coming out of that and rehabbing with some really great guys I then really systemized what I did and that's when I then really started to you know collate all of that you know previous 10 12 13 years experience and and then really sort of um you know pull it together into a quite a structured uh, way that can you know be delivered to people um, so it was just um, a breadth of experience. I mean, probably where I really first came across that movement was when I lived in China. Um, the alarms would go off every morning at about 6 a.m. with the, the communist sort of messaging at the university of being a, a good sort of citizen, go to hospital all day, work, and then in the afternoon there was always a two-hour break before um, between the afternoon hospital visit and lectures at night, from which lectures were 8 to 11 at night, so I had about a 6 to 8 period. And I'd go down the park and there was this little, little random little garden and there was this old guy doing all these different Tai Chi and different movements. And I just went and hung out with him. I barely spoke Chinese. He didn't speak a word of English. And I kind of really then sort of thought, hey, look, I've got to start to really look at movement in how I do things. And then from there, it's been an ongoing journey that I don't think will ever stop um, because movement and how your brain accepts, interprets, directs movement is something that I don't think you can really ever master. You can just sort of uh, engage on that journey, and that's what I believe in. Well, I think um, it's almost as if we grow into movement. You know, as we're younger, we grow into movement, we learn movement patterns, and we become pretty proficient pretty quick, I think, you know. Yeah. Let's say by the time you're a young teen, you can do a lot of, amazing things in terms of lateral movement and all the you know the things we used to do climbing trees and all that kind of stuff and then i feel as if we almost maintain that through let's say our competitive careers if we're competing in sports and things but then there's there's often a decline you know it's not as if we we maintain the ability to move well we actually detrain significantly and that's something i've i've really noticed as i aged and through um you know my choice of sport and things like that looking back you begin to if you're not very careful lose that ability to move laterally to you know support your own body weight even about, if you're very strong yeah yeah sorry i just dropped you there for a second but yeah and no, i got you back and yeah you're right and when you do lose that over time and that and there's we're really one of the things i've tried to understand is why we lose that and one of the things, you know, I was a high school teacher for a while and I taught at a school, uh, the school that I went to, a boys school with a thousand boys. And I taught there every year for 13 years as an old boy. And I ran swimming programs and rugby programs and all different sorts of things. 
And what I did notice was just, yeah, you get up to about 12 years old and people had this potential. And then over the next five years, there was quite uh, a steady decline in, in a lot of kids' uh, movement potential. Things like sitting, uh, sedentary, uh, things like uh, the shoes, etc. I've sort of really seen as being big influences in that. Yeah. That then causes, you know, a big change as we then get to that 17 to 24-year-old period, which should be a massive developmental um, and, you know, really coming into yourself physically sort of period. And I've found that that period is largely just in our culture dominated by getting on the drink and not really doing that or training for, um, you know, biceps and, and, and chest and, and singlet wears at the, uh, at the concert sort of thing, not for kind of being this this primal beast that at 24 you've got to be king of the tribe you know you know really primarily capable of doing physical things um, and then as a result work stress everything starts to really cloud your nervous system and that's when I've really found that things start to deteriorate quite quite rapidly and trying to unravel that whole um, you know puzzle is, is what I really find fascinating. Yeah. So there, there was a bunch of things to unpick there, and I just wanted to um, reiterate a couple of things for people listening in later. You mentioned that you've had a number of knee surgeries, you had a brain tumor, and you were functionally blind at one point, which all helped to obviously, you know, expand what you were doing with respect to neuroplasticity. And And one thing that really struck me is when you said, you know, everyone was talking about your knee injury, and not how the, the injury was affecting your, your brain and, and your psychoneurophysiology. That, that's a pretty fascinating topic that very few people are able to recognize. Yeah, definitely. So, and I'll just uh, quickly interject here. I was very fortunate that it wasn't a brain tumor. It was just in my sinus cavity and it had swelled up and had oh, right. caused a whole host of issues. <clears throat> so I was very lucky because essentially I just had a big you know, for want of being crass, big booger in my nose that had to get cut out. They went in there and did all that, cut it all out. So I had it very easy compared to people that are actually sick out there. And I just then had, you know, quite bad vestibular visual issues. And yeah, I couldn't read, I couldn't drive, I couldn't do all sorts of things. But compared to what other people have, I had it very easy, very good. Um, and But yeah, that's very much the thing is you know, in your brain, you know, there are lots of different maps. And, and that's what I try to tell people. It's things and habits. They're all just maps in your brain. Uh, you've got one sort of sitting here, and that is your, your sensory somatic map. And so everything in your body feeds up into your brain, uh, and that gives that image in, in your brain. That then, you know, passes on to information to the next map in your brain called the, the motor homunculus image. And that then directs output down and gives you control and strength and that sort of stuff. We all focus on, I've got a big, strong bicep, so I've got to lift more and I've got to do all this sort of stuff. And we're focusing on that output from a physical point of view, not from actually how that brain is controlling that output. I try to go a step back and simplify it even further. And I go, well, what if we just give the brain more information because the brain loves information? Keep giving it all this sensory input so that that first map that might have, say, you know, a, uh, a black mark on my knee is completely blurred out and how my brain sees it. Um, and therefore, I'm then trying to get this other part of my brain to give me a big, full, deep squat, and it can't actually read that knee. So what I'm trying to do is recreate, and I say that with you know, inverted commas, recreate that 
um, knee joint and that area in the brain with extra sensory information with movement and stimulation and joint mapping and uh, nerve glides and all different sort of uh, different techniques. And then that hopefully creates a more well-rounded sensory map in the brain and that feeds forward. And then the training comes into play because the training then is about increasing that feedback loop with more um, you know, sensory input because we have you in different positions so your inner ear and your eyes have to work differently. Uh, additionally, the training, because it's all body weight and it's all movement, it's all about range of motion and it's all about control in different compromised positions. And as a result, you know, we're really feeding that sensory motor feedback loop. We're training you through a full range of uh, movement. And for me, that, that is the key, is mobility is not just reaching down, touching your toes. It is being able to move through a full and active range of motion whilst under load with conscious and unconscious control. And that's mm. what I'm really trying to develop. Now, if you develop that well, you know, a big, strong guy like you with your weightlifting background, you're trying to move big, massive weights crazily, you know, up to your shoulders and then up above your head with conscious and unconscious control. What I'm trying to do is stepping back from that, you know, big, crazy weightlifter and going, hey, how about we just get your body really comfortable and smooth in itself? And then all of your weightlifting techniques, which are completely awesome and proven, this is going to just be that base of that pyramid. Because from what I see with injuries, and particularly athletic injuries, there's trauma-based ones, bang, you can't really do much about that. But when you have been called upon to do an athletic endeavour, bend, run, twist, jump, move in a compromised position, low on the ground, throw something heavy up above your head, and you get a little a little pop and you tear, you twist, you, you kind of can't control that movement, What's happened is you're up here on your pyramid and you're specialised as a weightlifter, as an athlete, as a rugby player, whatever it is. And that pyramid is just made up of all these little blocks. And you'll put yourself in a position where there's a gap in all those blocks like a Tetris. And then you just fall down. And that's what that injury is. So what I'm trying to do is go to these specialist guys that I work with, but particularly weekend worries and go, hey, let's fill in all these blocks. Let's get you really solid here. Let's build your house upon a foundation of concrete and firm underground so that when you then want to do something specific, you've got a base to draw from and that therefore you're going to be more resilient or um, you can better prevent injuries. You have more capabilities to move in complicated, diverse uh, movement planes and then you're more athletically capable. You, you can either use it as a standard system of training or to bolster what you do currently. Yeah, I mean, fascinating stuff. If, if, <clears throat> if I use myself as an example, how would someone like me, a washed up former meathead, <laughs> um, you know, weightlifter, catch wrestler, all that kind of stuff, former footy player, feeling a bit beaten up now, still training, how would I start to apply some of these concepts easily and without a, a sort of a, a massive time input, given that we're all, you know, relatively time poor? Yeah, sure. Uh, look, without kind of trying to come across as a hard sell here, I mean, that's what I've tried to <laughs> divide, uh, devise in the app and really put forward. Um, so basically, I have uh, pre-constructed mobility videos that are either 10 minutes long or anywhere up to 30 minutes long. And you can go in there and they're 10-minute basic office mobility ones that you can probably generally do, you know, in kind of long pants style thing. 
Then I have some athletic mobility videos. Uh, then in another section, I have 500 initially, uh, initially, I have 500 videos there that you can go in there and create your customized rehab program by just selecting on a few different techniques and body parts and then saving and downloading that to go, hey, I've had lots of injuries or uh, my shoulder from next rugby guy. I'm going to go through and work on all these different um, techniques to, to remap and re-stimulate re that shoulder up in my brain, etc. You might do five minutes each night. Um, or you can go in there and do those uh, mobility videos as your warm up to train. Now, before each training session, as I sort of mentioned earlier, I really try to focus on what I call a prepare. And that prepare, it's like your warm up. It's kind of you're prepared to go be physically capable and active and be primarily strong. So you can do that um, 10, 20 odd minutes before you do your weightlifting session. We're looking at stimulating that sensory input to the brain. We're looking at, you know, engaging some of that motor output so that when you then go do something that's really going to stress that motor output with that weight, you've already primed your nervous system to, to, do, to move well. We've greased the grooves, you're ready to then pump out the weights. And I do that with a lot of uh, footballers, rugby players, uh, you know, weightlifters, etc. And that's how they implement it. The system is almost uh, too diverse in that I've got, you know, so much there that it's hard to really go, hey, do this just for you. But it is this open blank. Uh, it's, it's a tool and you implement it how you want and how you see fit. Mm. Uh, but for someone like yourself, I'd go, hey, jump in there and do one or two mobility videos a week. Follow along 10 to 25 minutes based on your time parameters. I would then suggest going there, go to that sort of customised, personalised area and create yourself some rehab, um, you know, programs that you can do at night for your homework. So that's the app and I'll push that to the side. Generally for people out there, I'd say spend more time trying to engage your nervous system before you lift heavy and before you try and crush yourself. What you need to realise is that any sort of training is a stress. If you come into training stress with the workload, with previous injuries, with a diet that might be subpar and have some sort of, you know, chemical stresses stresses from that, poor sleep, blah, 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 we add on all these sorts of things. Training is then the thing that breaks the system. It's that straw that is overloaded that camel's back. It's not training was wrong. It's just that there's too much going on. So we need to balance this, the, the stress that training is and make it a positive stress. So mm. do a bit less you know, train prior to fatigue, you know, don't crush yourself, don't lift too heavy, focus on technique, focus on big ranges of movement and trying to move pain-free. Um, and then that's kind of how you can then, you know, start to implement some of the, the more basic concepts. I mean, I've got dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of videos on my YouTube channel and on Facebook that offer all these sort of tips and go, hey, here's a, a five-minute hip uh, and nerve glide sequence. So for people out there, yeah, jump over, get that hip um, nerve glide sequence and do that before your next squat routine uh, or before or after your next work day or before your next run and you will feel better um, from implementing that short, you know, little burst of, you know, sensory change and motor change there. Yeah, so I mean, it, it could be as simple as doing at least starting with a couple of minutes, maybe in the morning before training, just to to really ramp up the nerve. Well, not ramp up the nervous system, but to facilitate the nervous system. Yeah, facilitate that psychoneurophysiology. Um, but then it obviously expands from there. You mentioned a couple of other things, like you know the importance of nutrition, the importance of those chemical stressors and and life stressors, I guess yeah. as well. I mean, when I was, as you know, I think we discussed this in Aussie. I, I've had a 
pretty serious back injury with a couple of discs uh, ruptured in my back. And um, some of the things you said brought to, to mind a, a couple of memories of that. I was with my surgeon and he uh, said, oh, well, one of the things I can see is that your hammies are pretty tight. And I, I said, well, yeah, but is, is this sort of reverse causation? Because they weren't tight previous to the in, uh, injury. And he said, yeah, you're, you're probably right, actually. It's it's probably a facilitation thing whereby the, the body is inhibiting movement of of those joints, right? Yeah. And so it's interesting, the, you know, the chicken and the eggs an interesting thing. But also, as I looked into that particular injury for me, looked at the research, there was practically no association in a chronic pain setting between the pathology and the pain obviously in an acute setting so you get injured you're going to be sore right but in a chronic setting there was very little association and the associations that are strongest are those psychosocial things like fear and, and stress yeah and therein probably lies one of the most fundamental and important concepts um for training and stress and also you know pain physiology and how it all works i mean i was reading something yesterday and um, for chronic pain sufferers, uh, extended hugging with your loved one can actually, um, you know, alter your heart rate variability and can actually, you know, decrease some of your um, pain measurements in some of the pain scales they'll have. So they might be rating themselves nine out of ten. They'll have a five-minute hug, um, you know, just you know, platonic five-minute hug, and uh, and then you know their, their pain scale has actually decreased. Um, and that comes back to uh, maps. So when you've had that injury, what's actually happened is, is you've created this big new map in your brain when you, when you hurt your disc in your back. And very much associated with that physical structure is the emotional structure. It's, you know, in the brain, that those, you know, structures, they, they lie quite, quite closely together and they influence each other. So when you have that store back, you got, you know, you got upset, you got stressed, you got emotional, um, you got, you know, uh, pain and you've got a sensation of pain, etc. So what can happen is you can actually get rid of that injury to a degree, but then your back will go again. And what happens is that map, which has been, you know, over time, hopefully you've been able to layer it with lots of good new movements and pain-free periods, et cetera. But that map will come back up and it has, uh, as a map, it has just this, you know, associated emotions embedded in that. So then you'll get back to that feeling of like, my back, it's too much, I can't cope anymore, um, why me, you know, all that whole that psycho-emotional, you know, babble that goes on in your head, and I know that feeling well. Um, and then therein lies the key, you're, you're, you're too depressed to move, you're too upset to move, you're in too much pain to move, um, and as delicate as it, I want to place this, often that is a subjective response, that pain response, we need to then have that movement to keep um, altering that map and get that big map that's flared up buried back um, underneath the good ones. So guys that come see me with long-term issues, it's like, hey, you're always going to have that. It's kind of like a, a smoker is always a smoker. They've just stopped 15 years ago and, and they say, you know, somebody who's drunk is, is always going to be somewhat of an alcoholic. They just stop drinking, you know what I mean? Um, and it's the same with that chronic pain. You're always going to have it there, but the key is to just keep layering it on layering maps on top of that on a good maps and then when you have that flare up and unfortunately you will and I still have it with my knee and my neck and my in my face 
It's about reducing the, the length of the period, reducing the severity of that and reducing the impact of that um, re-engagement of that map. And I do that through lots of movement. And I do that through, you know, I'm not a, I'm unable to meditate, I'm a bit too wired, but a lot of breathing techniques. And my movement, my meditation is movement and getting in and doing lots and lots and lots of different things. And I find that that just, enables me to be mindful and focused and that essentially is what that meditation is focusing um, and so that enables me to do that and after a short while you can then hopefully clear that and then we add in there all the actual other different you know techniques and drills that I have uh, to help um, you know clear that and help re-engage the better movement systems if that makes sense. Along with those foundations you mentioned before of, of sleeping yeah. well and yeah you know, it's being that. mindful, eating well. Yeah, exactly right. And and that's a huge thing. People come and they'll say, uh, I mean, um, somebody told me I'm allergic to milk. I should stop drinking milk uh, or whatever it might be. And it's kind of like, yeah, you might have all of a sudden turned allergic to milk, but you've kind of been drinking it for 20 years. So why now? Um, and it's that, it's that straw that's broken the camel's back. And it's not that 1,000 straws fault. It's the fact that there's 999 straws underneath that. So what I try to do with people is just pull a straw off at a time and just with simple mm. little things and just eventually you'll kept down and you've pulled out a lot of things and then they'll have some milk or some bread and all of a sudden they're not reacting to the gluten or they're not reacting to the milk. And I don't want to upset anybody out there that has terrible um, allergies and, and autoimmune responses to those things. Um, but for a lot of people, that is often the case. It's it's the collation of all these stresses that overwhelms your nervous system, all that is lodged in your brain, your response to all these different things, your immune response, etc. Um, and if we can just declutter, de-stress through good, healthy movement, through minimizing some of these other stresses, um, etc., that's how you can really declutter the system. And as you said at the very start, my gateway into causing and affecting that change is prolonged because. Um, everybody aches, everybody's sore, everybody sits more than they should, everybody trains harder than they should, or everybody <laughs> doesn't train uh, enough. Um, and so I'm trying to just come up with a system and a technique that is low barrier entry into that field and you just do enough and it's going to start to have this cascading effects and then from that momentum you can see an expert like yourself and and go deep into nutrition or, or or supplements or or whatever it is that needs to happen but let you know just open the door and start to affect change and then anything's possible yeah i, th I think you you're bang on and uh, i think well fr from my personal experience you know you, you know that i um was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when I was in my early twenties and, and other things as well, bipolar disorder and all sorts of other stuff. Um, I, I think we can often, we become martyrs to our own conditions. And again, like you, I'm not, you know, wanting to deride anyone who has a health condition because we, we obviously work with people who have very serious health conditions. We understand how, how important it is. We understand the gravity of the situation, but I guess what you're saying and what I completely agree with is that it's not the one thing that is triggering someone's say relapse. You know, it's not just one thing that is causing someone's ill health. If they happen to be suffering ill health at the time, there is this accumulation of things. And I certainly know that, 
you know, the effects of stress, lack of sleep, and then a, a compounding of that with maybe too many things that I, I probably wouldn't usually be eating to, to thrive is going to mount up and eventually I'm going to get sick, right? But it's not that last glass of milk that I had. It's the fact that I didn't sleep well for the last three weeks and I've done this and that and I've been sitting too much and all those various things. Exactly right. And uh, yeah, 100% completely agree with you. Um, and yeah, I, I just can stress enough, I, do, I didn't want to uh, really take away from people their, um, you know, the, the pain they might be suffering with some of those autoimmune disorders or reaction to foods, etc. It's quite a stressful thing because I've coached people through it. Um, but Absolutely. it's more than just avoiding that one thing it's it's yep. coming across at that holistic point of view and again that goes back to what i said at the very start is um i i didn't want to just be somebody that just goes okay well all i do now is take gluten out of your diet or take milk out of your diet and, and you're fixed for life because yeah that's going to have benefits and it certainly will and again i'm not being disrespectful to anyone who does that coaches that or who who incorporates that into their lifestyle but what I'm trying to say is, you know, that's one straw. We've got to kind of just yeah. take off more and more and more. And, it's, you know, and another analogy is an ice cube, you know, you pull it out of the freezer at minus five, you put it on the kitchen bench, and at 32 degrees, you might start to see droplets running off. And you might start to then see at 35 and 40 degrees, it's a puddle of water on your bench after 10 minutes. It wasn't that the magic point was at 32 degrees. It was that that you pulled out the freezer at minus five, it's got to 32. So it's had 37 steps to get to that point before it started to lose some droplets of water and that system started to break apart. If we just can reverse that back to that freezing point, you know, you're going to be healthy again. And it's finding that midway point between, you know what, I need to have a donut once a week. That's non-negotiable for me. I love pizza. <laughs> I like to have a pizza. That's my thing, right? I have my pizza. Yeah. But you know what? The other, uh, it was seven days a week, I had six to nine cups of vegetables because um, I just love eating vegetables. Um, but I also need my meat. Um, and I do like to have milk with my coffee because I just can't drink black coffee. And I've gone full keto <laughs> for over a year and I just kind of came out of it thinking, I'm having milk with my coffee, right? But it, it, I incorporate that all into my overarching plan and my overarching, you know, reviews and check-ins that I, that I, you know, try to do with myself so that I'm never really going out of um, sync. I'm never going too far mm. in the wrong direction or I'm not trying too hard and investing too much willpower, which is by night. I'm just having a good, regular, healthy lifestyle. And I know people, you know, often say, well, there's no midpoint. I kind of think that there is a point where people can be continually improving and doing well and still having a good active lifestyle in you know many different fields. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that there are two aspects to that. One is mindset and one is sort of overarching resilience. And obviously they interplay with one another. I think if we have that mindset of resilience and we're trying to also build underneath that the physiology of resilience, then the small things don't really matter if we keep them within bounds, you know? And I think what stands in opposition to that is nowadays we have a health culture of fear. People are, are very afraid of things. They're scared of carbohydrates. They're scared of milk. They're scared of gluten, you know, and they feel because of that very fragile, very vulnerable. So that feeling they have stands in opposition to the mindset of resilience. So one thing I certainly do with my clients is try and coach them to, to feel 
stronger in mind, body, and spirit. So they have true resilience. And then they begin to realize that, hey, I'm making empowered decisions. Let's say I know that for me, having too much dairy is not a good thing because it's, you know, I find that it's inflammatory. That doesn't mean, though, that I can never have it ever. Yeah. Some people I know can't, you know, and that's just part of the part of the journey. But for many of us, we don't need to have those absolutes because we develop the resilience that comes from all those thousands of different things that you're talking about as compared to the one food you're withdrawing. And then that allows us to have those little things because at the end of the day, that tiny thing doesn't really make much of a difference if all those other things are falling into line. Exactly right. And, and I think the key there is, is understanding what resilience is. And, and with much, you know, anybody can go online and they can type in, you know, um, you know, any sort of fitness parameter question and they're going to get 1.3 billion results on how to, you know, flex your bicep or how to, you know, train for this. So I'm trying to move away from that and, and get people exactly who sort of understand the the emotional and that primal responsibility behind exercise because that's what really drives me. And if you understand that, then you're, you're kind of tackling it in an avenue that I think what you've just mentioned. Part of that is understanding resilience. And resilience, it's not about being a stoic oak tree and resisting all forces because if you resist all forces, you're going to break under something, okay? It's just, just yeah, almost it's what it is. Resilience, and I'll explain this to my daughter. Her name is Wilhelmina, um, and we, my wife and I couldn't decide between Wilhelmina and Willow. And so her full name is Wilhelmina, and her short sort of pet name for us is, is Willow. And a willow tree, and one of the reasons why we love that name was because a willow tree, you know, it bends. It's a very resilient tree. And what that means is it bends under forces, and then it can come back up. All right? So resilience is is adapting and bending to pressure and, uh, and then coming back up onto your path again. Uh, being unbreakable means that you're a rock uh, and, you know, you can't uh, bend in any way, shape or form. Now, that is great, but even the strongest rocks over time, eventually will the water, the softest, most malleable, resilient force in the world will, you know, uh, uh, rub that rock and smooth it out and change it. I know that's an extension of the analogy I'm trying to work here, but... You've got to be adaptable in your diet, in your lifestyle and in your training and in your approach uh, to life, which, again, ties back into what I was talking about before, about not having a set paradigm. I don't want to just be yeah. that one guy. I want to be the health and fitness guy, not the health and fitness guru or specialist or the, the body weight master or whatever sort of crazy name you can come up with. I, I wanted it to really reflect that, hey, somebody's come at me with a new idea here. Previously, I've thought this. Am I going to stick with here or am I going to try and onboard this and see how I can integrate it? And, and that's what I've really tried to do. And that's where I've maybe clashed with some other people that have said, you know, really gone after me because of my association with keto, not understanding that, that at one point I didn't like keto to a degree. But then I kind of upskilled myself and, and I prided myself on my ability to accept new ideas. So I... I let go of my initial hesitation and I read and I researched and I did it and I implemented it and I learned and I studied underneath other guys and people and women who taught me these things and then as a result it became applicable. So that idea of resilience physically in training, yeah, you've got to be resilient, you've got to bend under pressure and work hard, diet, nutrition, lifestyle, everything, you've got to be malleable to change and distress. And your approach to nutrition you mentioned before is, is somewhat flexible 
anyway, right? I, I guess you're probably similar to me in some respects in that you, you would take a, a carb-appropriate approach to the whole idea of keto or low-carb or whatever it happens to be. Exactly right. And, and you're one of the guys that I've been able to, uh, via your books, your podcasts, all the things you put forth, your research reviews, really upskill my knowledge on how to implement those sorts of things. Um, you know, initially when I was going through a, a really in-depth keto phase, I was like, well, maybe I don't ever actually need to have carbs ever again. And for somebody full in-depth in keto, yeah, they're good to go. They, they can live that lifestyle. But at the time, I was also coaching a 100-meter uh, Olympic um, freestyler. Uh, and she was going for her a second Olympics, and she actually won her uh, her second um, Olympic gold medal, so two Olympic gold medals wow. back to back. Um, and she was in keto, and she just thrived in ketosis immensely, emotionally, physically. Everything was fantastic, but we just lacked that little bit of that last little bit of um, you know glycolic explosiveness for that you know sub fifty second, fifty two second sprint. So we strategically kind of put carbs back into specific days in her training when she needed to be at that high-level sprint mark. The rest of the time when she was just doing that high-end aerobic work and, and that upper echelons of aerobic, anaerobic, anaerobic and aerobic, you know, crossover point, we could really just sort of push it through um, with um, ketosis and, and whatever. But then implementing those carbs, she was able to kind of uh, really stay, still maintain ketosis on and off throughout the day and over the course of the week, but have that level uh, of the ability to get up to the next via the carbohydrates. So, uh, yeah, and one, if I can, again, without being a hard sell, in the app I have uh, this section, this, this nutrient um, macronutrient profile that I've just worked with the last seven years, and, and I don't like people to really focus on macros, but often it gives something tangible to work with. And in that, it's a high-fat, um, low to moderate carb approach with the adequate protein that the, the science says that you need. And you'll just enter in your data points and I've taken some things out to simplify it and it gives you a pretty bang on point of the fat that you need, uh, the protein that you need, as well as the carbohydrates you need. Depending on how long your training is and how many times a week you were trained, that carbohydrate level will fluctuate. And if that fluctuates, then your fats will fluctuate as well. Your protein, I think, generally stays pretty similar because I think that's, you know, you just need that protein um, to just maintain that muscle mass. And then you can also use that, um, I think you answer another one or two data points, and it'll create your intermittent fasting profile um, so that you can then have your training days macro, and that might bump up depending on how hard and how long and how much training you're doing. Um, and then you can have your intermittent fasting ones and how, you know, severe or moderate that you want to go into that. So, yes, you've got to be adaptable in, in how you implement it. And you've been one of the big influences on me for that. Oh, th thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. It's, it sounds like we're, you know, your, your approach is very similar to, to some aspects, at least, of what I um, sort of outlined in the Cub Appropriate book. And... It's very similar now to where a lot of athletes are going, I think, with, uh, you know, guys like Dan Plews, who you, you might have um, heard my podcast with him. He's obviously a weapon athlete, you know, yeah. record holder at Kona and all that kind of stuff. And he's a legitimate low-carb athlete, as is a guy like uh, Paul Cadman. And, but they, they follow that mixed fueling approach and it recognizes the importance of carbohydrate for that glycolytic activity obviously 
And so I think it's really exciting because I hope that we're starting to break down a lot of the barriers that have been erected unnecessarily between, you know, zero carb carnivore versus keto versus non-keto low carb versus moderate higher carb, whatever. It's all pretty inconsequential if we start from a basis of number one, eating real food, number two, <laughs> sticking to a protocol we can actually, or, or having a protocol we can stick to, because obviously adherence is probably the, the biggest thing. And then fine tuning that based on what our desired outcomes are and uh, what the demands of our activity are. Exactly right. And what that person needs. So, you know, as we touched on before, uh, they're either going to have a very strict, um, you know, inbuilt genetic um, adverse response to milk or, or, or dairy or, um, you know, gluten, etc. And so that needs to be incorporated. Um, or they might need to abstain from some of those foods. So it's again, yes, yeah, it's, it's everything you just said is the hundred is exactly what I try to aspire to do um, and then try to tailor that to the person. But at the end of the day, you know, people come to me like, oh, what diet should I do? What, you know, what supplements should I take? And I go, hey, Matt, I'll talk to you about supplements after you eat six cups of vegetables a day, mixed colours and everything, <laughs> okay? And I'll let you maybe approach me about a protein powder after you get your required adequate amounts of protein per day um, and your, your level of input is is going to be somewhat reflected in your level of output and not just in how hard you train but in the um, day-to-day activity level that you persist in so you know I think there's there's a lot there but at the end of the day eat lots of vegetables eat the meat and the protein that you need have a wide and varied diet um, and you know from that basis then have times or then specialize don't just go straight to specialization just work on getting the basis right because that might be enough for you and then if you then need that specialization, please don't, you know, really go and just get like a, uh, you know, a, a 101 sort of, uh, you know, keto sort of guide or something that says to you to, you know, deep fry your bacon in canola oil and whatever. It's kind of try, try to get somebody uh, to help you navigate that field because things like your gastric acid juices are going to affect your ability to break down some of the fats, which then might affect your ability to get into that ketosis, et cetera. So, you know, try to, you know, upskill yourself, be part of some programs that can do that. Like your, um, I think you have that four or six week keto mastery course, which I'm yet to do, but just is just perfect for a lot of my clients um, and just general people out there that want to engage in this, but just need that little bit of upskilling and, you know, start here and then go up. And obviously your app, you know, I've got to give a shout out to that as well. <laughs> So those are some really good take-home points for for nutrition, right? I think it's really important um, for people to have just those few key things they can implement every day. And so obviously those are things that you do. Are are there other things outside of nutrition that are your sort of must-dos on a daily basis that help you to keep that balance? Yeah, look, um, I try not to call um, my my training training uh, most of the time. So I have what's called a daily buying. And that is just uh, that I'll do that pretty much every single day. And for me, that's kind of like the minimum requirement that I owe my primal um, obligation Mm. to be fit, strong and healthy. Um, And it's the minimal requirement of effort I feel like I need to pay uh, to the world to have this extraordinary lifestyle that I lead. Um, And so, and and just, you know, the minimum amount of 
effort I need to be adequately fit and strong. And for so for a lot of people, it's just find what you can just do seven days a week. That might be walking to work. That might be a, a set of yeah. 20 squats, push-ups every morning or whatever it is. And then on top of that, you know, depending on timetables and stress and diet and my sleep, which which all haven't been good lately in regards to stress and sleep the last couple of months, um, I will then implement training based off of um, how much they're influencing me. Um, so I would just say to people, just move, just get moving, implement yeah. some really basic things day in, day out, and just make it a part of your life. You know, like hopefully people aren't out there going, you know what, I'm not brushing my teeth today. I'm just, I'm just not doing it. It's like, no, no, guys, we brush our teeth every day and, and hopefully you, you kind of go to the toilet every day. So every day do something as, as important as doing some movement for five minutes. And, you know, so five minutes of crawling, five minutes of spinning, five minutes of just whatever um, you can do or the way the five-minute videos that I have for this reason, just do that minimal amount every day as you're buying and then see your exercise then as, you know, additional on top of that. That's a, a great point. And I um, spoke about a similar thing with Mickey Willardin on the podcast a while back. And we were talking about getting into running because she's obviously a runner. And uh, I think this applies to any type of training or modality though, is people think, and meditation as well, people think, well, here's best practice, right? I should go out and run for, you know, minimum 20 minutes, three times a week. Or if I'm meditating, I should meditate for 30 minutes. And so I think, okay, well, I'm going to get into this. Tomorrow I'm going to go out for a 20-minute run. I think that's a recipe for failure. Yeah. I think right now, because I'm relatively deconditioned for that aerobic-style work, I'm a pretty fit guy. But if I went out and did a 20-minute run today, I'd be crippled, right? It, it <laughs> yeah. wouldn't work. So yeah. I think one of the things that people need to understand, and this is something I talk about in my, my workshops a lot, is training that the habits of movement and the habits of activity. So rather than thinking, well, tomorrow I'm going to do a, an hour workout or go for a 20 minute run or do a 30 minute meditation. Why not start with, as you said, that minimum effective dose, which is actually, if you're starting from zero, anything more than zero, you know, so I've had people start, actually, I, I'm going to backtrack here because I, I don't know if I ever told you this, but when I had my, um, after my back injury, I kept trying to return to training and I did it. I did way too much too soon every time. Yeah. So I got to a point where I said, okay, I'm going to treat, I'm going to pretend I'm a baby again. And I'm going to basically do a little bit of crawling and do one set of push ups and one set of squats. And that's it. But then the next week, I'll actually, no, it wasn't even that. It was one push up, one squat. And the next day, two, and the next day, three, building up to a point where I was doing around 50 of each. And then I felt that I was strong enough then to get back in the gym and start to do, you know, deadlifts and squats and things. Really interesting approach because it's so easy as to almost seem ridiculous. And I think that's how it should be. If it's so easy, it seems ridiculous, but you're, you know, consistently increasing, you will end up training the patterns of movement and the habit of movement to the point where it just becomes part of part of you exactly and that's why I often I, I rebel against this idea of uh like an eight-week uh shred or, or or something like that and I try not to post on my website generally speaking before and after photos because I don't want people to think that there's now and after and there's a stop point and and when I drive my kids to school each day I drive past this gym 
and it's got uh, the sign and it says, you know, uh, come in for a HIIT workout and you're guaranteed to burn a thousand calories in, in 30 minutes or something. And it's like, yeah, yeah, does that person need to burn a thousand calories? Do they need to crush themselves? Because chances are if they crush themselves on Monday, they're still going to be hurting Thursday, Friday, then they turn up Monday, they crush themselves again, or or maybe they go a few other times and they just do that for four, five, six weeks. And yeah, they might look good, but then they've got to burn out and, and, and they've just laid yeah. straws on, on their back. If we look at it from, and this is what I say to people, the long game. If we look at it now that I'm at 20, I, I had spent the previous two years in a casting on crutches because I had my second and third knee reconstruction. The doctor said, just after my uh, 20th birthday, mate, you're never going to walk or run again. I'm really sorry. You can always have a bit of a limp and you're never running. So it took me six and a half years and I got back to doing a bit of jogging and that was good enough for me. The long game means that I was then hoping to get to 30 and I wanted at 30 to be fitter and stronger than what I was at 20 because all the 30-year-olds I was seeing weren't. Uh, and then I got to 30 and I was completely crushed again. Uh, from from the, all the stuff in my head, I couldn't walk. I was just completely hammered. Then my goal now is I'm 37. It's the fittest and strongest I've ever been. But I want to get to 40 and be fitter than what I was at 30 and fitter than what I was at 20. I want to get to 50 and be fitter again. So with that mindset in mind, I don't need to get up and crush myself today if I'm not feeling great. I, if I can look at that whole year, there's 365 days. You know, so so having those days where it ebbs and flows, that's okay if you're constantly just on a very gentle sliding scale up. So it's never about massive. It's always about, you know, that gradual approach. And as you said there, implement those little um, habit-forming, those little maps of movement, movement potential and health there. And, and do it diversely. So do it with the exercise and do it with nutrition, do it with the lifestyle and do it with all these different sorts of things. So you're just having this broad-based approach as opposed to just crushing yourself physically for six weeks and then kind of like, okay, I'm done now for summer. <laughs> yeah. I, I found that was uh, really helpful when I was entering into my PhD. So just started my PhD. We were under a bit of financial stress as well and, and things things were pretty... <laughs> I mean, dare I say it, they were just really stressful, right? It was yeah. a really stress-filled time. And I found I, I didn't have the the mental or emotional wherewithal to get into the gym and and train as I previously had. And, and I really just didn't feel like I had the physiological reserve. And so I started doing a lot of intermittent training. And so I would basically, um, you know, I, I, I'm a really into productivity, as you know. So I'd set, you know, apparently this optimal productivity time is 54 minutes. So I'd set a 54 minute work block. And then between the 54 minutes and the next hour, so six minutes, I would just move. I would get up and do, I'd roll around on the floor first just to, you know, get a bit of active release and stuff like that, and then do something. And it might've been some handstand push-ups, or it might've been some pistols or some push-ups. And I, I would end up accumulating through the day quite a large volume of of movement and resistance but it didn't feel stressful at all in fact it felt good because it was helping me to recover from sitting for 54 minutes exactly and you touched on two of my uh most important coaching concepts the first one is decision fatigue you know get up what clothes should i wear i better get in the car i better drive the gym i've got to park the car i've got to get in there i i turn up what should i do now Oh my God, the guy's doing it. He's in the squat rack again, curling. I was going to do squats. Where should I go next? Oh, this is too hard. I'm going home. 
you know, and, yeah. and if you're already stressed doing a PhD as a stay-at-home mom or dad or a busy executive, you don't need to make more decisions. So you need everything. You need to invest maybe half an hour to an hour each week in really consolidating that decision um, time on Sunday afternoon with a bit of food, a glass of wine, whatever floats your boat, and map out your week and what you're going to do. Uh, I've also tried to really implement that decision fatigue paradigm into the training so that, yeah, you just press play and you do it. Or, yeah, download one of the 30-odd weights programs I've got in the uh, the member site so that you don't have to fit, uh, think. You've, just, you've got it. You can go plug and play. And that removes a lot of stress there. The second thing is exactly what you said then. I have something called accumulation sets. And that for me is one of the single best ways to really have massive improvements um, in your capabilities without ever really stressing. Now, if you think about it, mm. if I was to go to you, hey, you need to do 250 squats. And, and if you went and did that in that one go, you might be a little bit tight and sore and fatigued afterwards. Or if I said to a, a, a mother postpartum, hey, I need you to do 100 pelvic floor squeezes, 100 this, 100 this, she's just going to go, well, I don't have half an hour to sit there and do that nor do I have physically can I do that, nor mentally can I do that. But what I try to say is, hey, like every hour, just do um, 10 push-ups or do this or do this. And, and if so, and how I picture to people is like, if you can do 10 good reps and then at 11 you're pretty fatigued, drop it back to four reps. If you can bang out 50 reps easy, drop it back to 20 because we want those yeah. accumulation sets easy so that you've just got this tiny little glimpse every day. You're not, and throughout the day, so you're building this big volume of work without crushing yourself. And that comes into yeah. another phrase that I really try to harp on with people. It's about stimulation, not annihilation. So a, a thousand reps in one go might be annihilation for a lot of people, but a thousand reps over the course of 10, 12 hours during the day might be doable or maybe 100 reps might be too much for you or 50 reps like it was for me and yourself at one point in time. So spread that 50 reps out over 10, 12 hours in the day. That's that's kind of 10 lots of five reps and they might be half reps. They might be just low-key reps. You're not even going to break a sweat or get your heart rate or breathing rate up really, but you're going to be developing it and stressing that muscle. Yeah. Now, if you look at that over the course of a week or, or three days a week, at 50 reps a day, there's 150 reps. And then if you do that over yeah. the course of a month, there's 600 and seven. You know, you can see that volume builds up on that long game. And that's um, th- that's a really fundamental tenet of of strength and the skill of strength as well, yeah. is that, you know, we, we want to do more repetitions because that is training the movement pattern, but we want those repetitions to, number one, be as good as they can be. I don't, I don't like to say perfect because nothing's perfect, but, you know, with really good form and, and striving for perfection and being happy with progress, um, but also under under greater load over time. And the only way we can really achieve those things is to actually modify our, our frequency so that we can get in those good quality reps without just destroying the body because there becomes diminishing returns. Not only do we not get the work in because we're so smashed, we can't train for X amount of time, but the reps that we're putting in, like you mentioned, 100 reps, let's say I went and did 100 reps of push-ups now, I could probably get there, but I imagine the last 30 would be pretty shit. Yeah. 
as compared to doing five sets of 20, where they're probably going to be on point. And if you then spread those five sets of 20 over the course of your day, every single one would be 100% perfect. So then you're finished up with 100, 100% perfect uh, push-ups at the end of the day. And probably where I see this really working well uh, is something like chin-ups. You know, people just hate yeah. chin-ups. So it's like, okay, well, how many can you do really well? And they might say three or they might say none. It's like, okay, if you can't do none, that's fine. If you've got a chin-up bar available at home or whatever, every time you walk past it or every hour, stand up and then just lower yourself down slowly. That's yeah. one rep. Fantastic. Working on those negatives. Or you might go out there and just do one full rep, leave it, come back, and over the course of the day, there's 10 perfect reps. Over the course of a week, that's 50, 200, and it loads up. And you're building volume, but you're nervous just sitting there, repping it out, gripping your teeth, stressing your body, stressing your nervous system. Um, and you're not doing bad technique. Uh, so exactly yeah. right. That accumulation sets, um, the decision fatigue matrix, stimulation, not annihilation, they are really key uh, phrases and concepts that I try to, you know, really impart upon people to help them with uh, the other word that I like to use, the other phrases, that long game. And you, you actually mentioned something else earlier in the cast as well, greasing the groove, and that's a, a really good example with the, the chin-up. Mm. analogy is is greasing the groove I, i'm a really big fan of people getting those um you know doorway chin-up bars yeah. if they don't have anywhere else to do them and just putting that in somewhere where they're walking through fairly frequently and doing maybe just one repetition every time they walk under it and in doing that um you know my, my partner bella bella nutritionist she um was able to add i don't know how many she's doing now but she was able to add a lot of repetitions to chin-ups and pull-ups where she previously I'm not sure if she could do do one correctly and and um the improvements in strength from being able to pull up your own body weight and then do it five six seven eight nine ten twelve twenty times you're a legit strong person if you can do 20 chin-ups exactly right and you know you're just you're doing you're improving so many things there you know physically and, and your shoulder health and your grip strength and um you know <laughs> Even if going down to, I know it's sort of not uh, causative, it's more correlative, but, you know, life expectancy increases with uh, how strong your grip is. So, so you know, maybe uh, if it is causative and you can do 20 chin-ups, then you've just added five years to your life, you know. But if you then look at, well, the person with that grip strength that is living longer, you know, maybe they were able to do more chin-ups. So, you know, there's so many elements to that, that thought there. And it's the, the simplest and easiest way for people to just incorporate and stimulate without completely crushing themselves exactly well chris i've taken up too much of your time but i will definitely get you back i think i say that to everybody because i only get interesting people on the cast <laughs> but i'll definitely get you back because uh you know we could talk uh, about a whole bunch of other things as well but you've covered off i think some of the really key fundamentals for for health and given people some really good take-home messages that they can start to apply right away now, you, you mentioned your app earlier. Where can people download that and when is it being released? Uh, that gets released. Uh, I have my sort of private onboarding of my current members who are on my website this week. Um, and then next week, I'm doing a, a little sort of minor launch. Um, but it's going to be open in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so basically, Thursday, the 11th of the July, July onwards, uh, you'll be able to jump on to uh, primalthetics.com, which is not yet live, uh, and you'll be able to uh, download it there. It's a private app um, because there's so much added value to the membership website um, 
as well. So, you know, you go to the website, you get a 30% discount, you sign up there, you download the app via the webs, um, you can then create your account, go to the, the, the app stores, download it there and enter your details uh, and you get a discount by, by doing it through the website. Uh, so that comes up in the next couple of weeks and I've got lots of announcements coming up um, on my Facebook sort of page, which is um, at the Health and Fitness Sky with a, a few more announcements coming up and uh, some specials that I'll be uh, putting out there. It's it's the culmination of my last uh, 20 years. It's, uh, it's very much uh, personal and it's very much about that journey and it's tried to incorporate all these things we've talked about. So it's not just about, hey, here's the training app, uh, to get credit, uh, sure that can happen, uh, but it's trying to incorporate all those emotional, psychological and neurological um, rehab, mobility components that were touched from there, and lifestyle into a training paradigm that is kind of your gateway into change or your gateway into your levelling up to, your, to the next level of your fitness and conditioning. Um, so it's, it's been an epic, epic uh, journey for me and one that's not going to end, you know, it, it's... I'm currently what's in phase two, which is the app. Uh, I had a phase one, I had many before that. So it's something that I keep on developing and improving. Um, so it's a big passion and it's my life's work essentially. So it's uh, it's pretty intense and I'm really passionate and committed about it. Um, and I'm hoping that I can get to a certain amount to make it viable. And then essentially once I reach that amount, it's almost gonna stop the memberships so that I can really uh, service people. I don't want to blow out to something like a hundred thousand members or or even close to that amount because I want to be able to help the people enough. I don't think um, I really want to have enough in there that I can still offer personalised help and advice and, and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, Primalfitness.com in the next two weeks, and then the Health and Fitness Guy on Facebook at the moment has uh, a lot of information. Good stuff. Well, I'll make sure all of those links are in our show notes as well. Um, anyone who's listening in, definitely get along to the show page at cliffharvey.com. Check out this um, the cast in the show notes so that you can click through to, to primalphoenix.com and to um, Chris's Facebook page as well. I'm a big fan of what you do, Chris, because I, I just love all of that primal movement stuff. And I, I find the way that you translate that to, to my experience is it, it just fits. I, I really enjoy it. So Hope you all check that out and enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you so much for being with me today, Chris. Uh, thank you so much for letting me chat to you. And thanks to everyone who's taken the time out of their day to, to listen to me ramble on. It's, it's a great privilege and I genuinely, genuinely appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. To support the podcast and receive member-only benefits along with free articles, go to cliffharvey.com. Subscribe to the podcast on all popular podcast channels and to our YouTube channel at holisticperformance.tv.